Well, hey, good morning, be free, welcome. My name is Ben, I'm the pastor here, and we are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. That's who we are, that's what we do, and that's how we do it. So grab your Bibles, open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts, chapter 4, verses 1 through 31, that's where we're going to be today. And the passage that we have today is so incredibly powerful and so incredibly relevant to us in February of 2021. So go ahead, open up your Bibles there. So Olivia and I, were new uh, in this, this journey of parenting, and uh, I think that God's been working on us a lot recently, just to grow in us this conviction that the role of discipleship for Davy is primarily on our shoulders. We are responsible for passing on the truth of Jesus Christ to her. Um, and so every single night, you know, when we're putting Davy to bed, we pray with her. And then later on, when we go to bed, we pray uh, for a lot of things, but including Davy. We pray with her and we pray for her. And the reason why prayer is so central to our role as parents is because prayer is powerful. <laughs> we believe that prayer truly works, that prayer softens and changes people's hearts, and that, and that it's God working through our prayers to accomplish his work in the world and in the life of our daughter. So prayer is essential to our role as, as parents. And as we pray for Davy at night, uh, there's two things I pray for her pretty much verbatim every single night. And it's this, I pray that she would be a woman who is bold for what is true, yet compassionate to the people around her. Like I said, I pray that almost every single night verbatim, and sometimes I wonder if I should mix it up sometimes, pray something a little bit different. But the reality is I cannot get myself to pray anything other than this because it's not too strong a language to say, I long for that to be true of my daughter. I long for her to be a woman who is bold for what is true. That she is a woman who knows and holds firmly, firmly and unflinchingly to the truth, specifically the truth of Jesus Christ. And a woman who is passionate, who handles this truth with a gracious and gentle hand. I long for that to be a description of who Davy is and who any of our children are in the future. It's a prayer that she's going to need in her life. And recently, Olivia and I have been reading this book by Matt Chandler and Adam Griffin, two pastors, uh, called Family Discipleship. And what they say in this book is, is really helpful for me. Let me read you just one sentence. They say this. They say that raising kids who follow Christ means that you are preparing a generation ready to be comfortable being different and even looked down upon by a culture that thinks they know better. They go on in this paragraph to talk about how our role as Christian parents is to help prepare our kids for a life where they are unpopular. That our role is to prepare them to go out and live in a culture, in a world where the name of Jesus Christ will not earn them any respect. Because the days have, it has been for a long period of time that being a Christian, being named a follower of Jesus Christ was something that was respected, was something that was considered honorable. Being a part of a church uh, was considered being a, involved in your community. But those days are past. And rather, what I know is that as, I, as, as my daughter, as Davy goes out into this world, she will be hated by all for Christ's name's sake. That's what Jesus promises in Luke chapter 21. 
that if the world hates her, it's because it has hated Jesus before it hated her. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 15. This truth isn't just true of my daughter. It's true for all of us. Christians today living in the Western world, we have to be bold for what is true, yet compassionate to the people around her, around us. And so as we come to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31 today, I'm coming to the passage with this question. What does it mean for us to be bold for Christ? What does it mean for us to be bold for the sake of Jesus Christ, even in the face of deep unpopularity? Because in this passage, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31, we see the church in Jerusalem uh, face persecution, true persecution for the first time. And we see Peter and John model for us what it means and what it looks like to have a supernatural boldness. So we're going to look through this story today, read through it, and I'm going to unpack it for us. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is going to be a picture and an example for you of how you can be bold for Christ even when you become more and more unpopular in the eyes of the world. But I want to say this, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, if you're just considering what it means to be a Christian, I want to say this passage is important for you as well. I think it's incredibly important for you as well. Because if you come to the point where you put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to say it will be the best decision you have ever made. I can say that with confidence. You will never regret the day that you have trusted and come to follow Jesus Christ. But at the same time, following Christ is not an easy thing to do. That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there is an incredible cost. It is not easy to follow Christ, but it is worth it and it is good. So, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, let's learn a little bit more. What does it look like to be bold for the name of Jesus Christ in this world? And if you're not, I pray that you get a better picture of what it means to follow Christ in this world. Or what it would mean to follow Christ. So what does it mean to be bold for Christ? Let's pray and then we will dive in, starting in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for this word, just even in the sense that it has so impacted me already this week. Father, the picture that we see here is a picture of faithful boldness. Faithful boldness modeled by your apostles to us. And so, Father, as we we come to this today, I pray that it would uh, reveal to us just a little bit more about how we can live in boldness, how we can live boldly, for the name of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I, I pray that our hearts would be softened to hear what you have for us, that we would walk away more determined and uh, more, more in love uh, with, with, uh, with, with you and with, uh, with our commitment to follow you and to live for you. Father, may we be more prepared to live in a world where we are not popular for what we believe yet still able at the same time to shine a light into the darkness. And so, Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So Peter and John, they're in the temple. 
They heal a man who's been lame from birth. The Jewish people around them come flocking to them. And Peter uses that example, or sorry, that opportunity to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And this is what comes next. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter and John are in the temple and they are proclaiming the Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And the sermon that they preach there is incredibly fruitful. We've actually already seen in the book of Acts up to this point uh, that the author Luke has given us kind of benchmarks of how big the community of Jesus is. We saw at the beginning of Acts that it was a group of 120 people. Then in Acts chapter 2, we saw that it was 3,000 people. Then at the end of chapter 2, we saw that it was growing day by day. Then here, we're told that there are 5,000 men, just men, in this community of Christ and the people of God. And so there they are, preaching the gospel, proclaiming in Jesus' name the resurrection of the dead. And the Jews, it says here, are greatly annoyed. And so what do they do? They arrest them. And then they call an emergency meeting, basically of the who's who of the Jewish leadership, the the rulers, the elders, the scribes, that is the the Jewish high council, together with with the high priests. And they bring them together. They bring John and Peter before this council. And they ask them this question. They ask them, by what power or by what name do you do this? It's an interesting question. By what power or by what name do you do this? What they're saying is, by what power do you do this? How did you do this? Or by what name? So, whose power did this? How did you do this? Or, how, or by whose power did this happen? But the thing that makes this question most remarkable and most interesting is that the Jews knew the answer. At least the Jews knew the answer that they would give. Because think about this. They were in the temple. They were clearly proclaiming that, chapter 3, verse 16, 
faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter and James, in other words, they were absolutely clear whose power was doing this. They were absolutely clear that it was in the name of Jesus Christ that this man had been healed. So why did they ask the question? Why, did this, why does the Jewish leadership ask them to tell them by whose power or in what name was this man healed? Let me explain it to you like this. I grew up in a town called Katy, Texas, and uh, there in Katy in about maybe 1999 or 1998, uh, they, they built a, a YMCA. And now this YMCA that was built, it was called Ken Lay YMCA. It was named after somebody, in other words, who, who gave a lot of money to the building. Uh, and so to honor him, they, they named the building after him. Now, I didn't know who Ken Lay was, and I honestly didn't think about it that much. It was just the name on the sign as, as I drove past that building. But you might know the name Ken Lay. Because in 2000 or 2001, he was a name, uh, his name was in the news quite a bit. Because Ken Lay is the founder and CEO of Enron. Ken Lay, in other words, was the founder and CEO of the company that was guilty of the biggest example of corporate fraud in American history. And so all of a sudden, you didn't really want your, your business to be tied to a man like Ken Lay. He was guilty of 10 accounts, 10 accounts of corporate fraud. And so I just remember a little bit after all of this went down, um, driving past the YMCA in, in my town and seeing that uh, the, the, the people, uh, the YMCA had gone out to the sign, the concrete sign on the road with an angle grinder and ground Kenley's name off, off of the sign. And a couple weeks later, uh, there was a whole new sign in its place that just said, Katie Family YMCA. Here's my point. You don't want to be connected or associated with a convicted criminal. You don't want to be associated with the name of a convicted criminal. That's not good for your PR. That's not, uh, that's not uh, a, a good place to find yourself. It's, it's the same reason why in 1944, the name Adolf was one of the most popular names for babies, for babies in Germany. But by 1946 and 1947, almost nobody was naming their babies Adolf. The reason being, you don't want to be tied to a convicted criminal. So I don't really know what the Jewish leaders were doing here. I can't say for sure what they were trying to accomplish. But I suspect that the Jewish leaders wanted Peter to answer this question. In whose name did you do this? In order that he would tie himself to a convicted criminal. After all, Jesus, very shortly before, had just been publicly executed in front of everyone. And so they ask him this question, by what power or by what name did you do this? And I love Peter's answer because Peter basically says, guys, I thought you'd never ask. Verse 18, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter's answer is bold. Now, I want you to notice four things about Peter's answer here. Number one, his answer is not a safe answer to give. Peter is speaking to the exact same men who put Jesus to death just a little bit ago. And to the exact same group of men who's going to put Stephen to death in just a couple chapters. Peter's answer, in other, other words, it is not safe. Second thing to notice, Peter is not ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. He says clearly that it was Jesus who healed this man. Not only that, but he wants everyone to know that it was Jesus. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man is standing before you well. The third thing we have to notice is that Peter's answer is to tell the Jews the exact thing he got in trouble saying the first time. Just think about this. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now Peter says to the Jewish council, right to their faces, By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom God raised from the dead, this man was healed. Peter unblushingly says to the Jewish leaders the exact thing he got in trouble for. And finally, the last thing we need to see here is that he accuses them of killing Jesus. He does so directly. In verse 10, saying that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. And he also indirectly does so by quoting Psalm chapter 118, verse 22, indicating that they, the Jewish leaders, rejected the cornerstone. They, the Jewish leaders, rejected the one who was sent by God's mighty, perfect plan. Peter and John are bold incredibly bold and boldness is one of those things that we might not be able to define but we know it when we see it and this is bold the jewish leaders knew that this was boldness on display we actually see this in verse 13 they say now when they saw the boldness of peter and john they knew this was incredible supernatural boldness now, what makes Peter and John's actions here bold? What is it about their answer that causes us to say that they are being bold? Well, they are asked a dangerous question. A question that wasn't safe to answer, but they answer directly, regardless of the circumstances. Disregarding what might happen to them because of their answer. They don't water down the answer. They don't beat around the bush. They answer directly. What actually what happens here is they see an opportunity to witness to Jesus Christ and they take it boldly. And if that's an example to, to us of what boldness is, then we might say that boldness is, uh, it doesn't mean being, uh, being brash or rude necessarily. Uh, Peter and John, they're not unnecessarily brash or rude. Rather, what they do is they simply speak the truth. They speak the truth no matter the consequences, whether it's popular or unpopular, whether it's safe or dangerous. So what does it mean to be bold? 
We might say as a working definition that boldness is speaking and living the truth, no matter the cost. Boldness is speaking and living the truth, no matter the cost. Let's keep reading at this point and continue to build out our understanding of what it means to be bold and what it might mean for us to imitate their boldness. So join me in verse 13. Now when they, that's the Jewish leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The Jews saw and knew four things to be true. Number one, that these men were being bold. That was absolutely very much clear. Secondly, they saw that they were uneducated, and that just means that they weren't educated in the school of the rabbis, in the tradition of the rabbis. Thirdly, they saw that they were with Jesus, meaning Jesus was their rabbi. Their teaching, their miracles was, as an, was a direct effect of the ministry of, of uh, Jesus, uh, sorry, of their time following Jesus. And the fourth thing they noticed, and they could not deny, was that a man who has been lame for birth for his entire life, had been healed. And so this isn't good news for them. It's not good news to them because these men doing this amazing signs, they were doing them in the name of Jesus. Doing them, in other words, in the name of a man that they put to death. That's not good news for them. And so the thing is, they couldn't turn around and undo what happened. The entire city, everybody saw what had happened. And so rather than, or because they couldn't turn around and fix what had happened, what they decided to do was to try to contain the fire a little bit, to stop it before it spread too far. They charged Peter and John not to speak the truth or, or teach at all in the name of Jesus. In other words, what these Jewish leaders said to Peter and John is, don't do what Jesus told you to do. Rather, listen to us. Do what we tell you to do. Because after all, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells them, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And now the Jews are charging them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus Christ. And so the predicament for the, for the disciples is this. Do we obey Jesus? Or do we obey the Jews? Do we listen to what Jesus told us to do? Or do we listen to what the Jewish leaders are telling us to do? right now. And so they say to the Jewish leaders, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. 
In other words, they say to them, hey, if, 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 some, if a man told you to do something and God told you to do something else, what would you do? They turn the question around, like, you must judge if it makes sense to listen to you or to God. And they continue, For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, we cannot stop bearing witness to the things we have witnessed. We cannot stop doing the thing that Jesus told us to do. It is not easy for us to follow Christ. We understand that we are probably going to be uh, uh, hurt and persecuted uh, for bearing witness to Jesus Christ, but we cannot do anything else. Here I stand. I can do no other. Peter and John are bold, but they make it look easy, don't they? They make it look easy to stand boldly in Christ, even in the face of unpopularity, even in the face of persecution. But I want to make this absolutely clear. Being bold in the face of persecution is not easy. We know that. It is not easy to be bold in the face of persecution. So the question we have to ask ourselves as we look at this passage today is where did Peter and John get their boldness? Where did they turn to find their boldness and how can we find it too? Let's read to the end of this passage and then we'll turn around and, and, and unpack it. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Peter and John are bold and they make boldness look easy. When we read this passage, it just looks like they are in their natural habitat. They're like a fish in water. But we have to make no mistake, boldness in the face of persecution is not easy. They speak truth in the face of persecution, but it is not easy to do so. And right now, be free, we are living in times where we need to wrestle with this question of how do we speak truth in the face of persecution? How do we boldly Stand firm in Christ, even when doing so will make us less and less 
and less popular. Be free. We are living in a time, even this week, where we need extra, <laughs> we need supernatural boldness. Because even this past week uh, in, in the House, in government, this Equality Act was passed. It was a major step in setting uh, sexual and gender revolution into law. And pending a revival, the reality is be free. It's not going to get any easier for us to follow Christ in this country. It's not going to become any more popular for us to name the name of Jesus Christ in our workplaces, in our schools, as we go about our days. And so we need to be asking ourselves this question, where do we get the kind of boldness that Peter and John had? Where do we find it? Well, what I want to do is I want to look at four things that they do. Four places Peter and John turn in order to find boldness in Christ. And number one is this. They remember who their king is. If you're somebody who takes notes, that's the first point to write down. They remember who their king is. You see, because when you become a Christian, what you do is you submit yourself to someone else. You submit your life under someone else's authority. When we become a Christian, we say that we believe in Jesus, we, we trust in Jesus, we follow Jesus, we put our faith in Jesus. But another word we might use to try to help fill out what it means to be a Christian is that we give our allegiance to Jesus. We make Jesus our master. We make Jesus our king. In other words, we give him control over our lives. We give him the highest authority. What he says goes. And the Bible speaks about this moment of faith as death sometimes. We read this in passages like Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We find it in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, this, this implement of, of execution, and follow me. We see it in Romans chapter 6, verse 24. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life's life. When we come to Christ, be free. We die to our old selves. We put to death our old wants, our old desires, and we enter into the joyful, loving, eternal life of our master, of the high king. In other words, what we do is we trade something temporary for something eternal. We trade something broken and fleeting for something whole and lasting. We trade the illusion of personal control over our life for the joy of knowing that the righteous, perfect king is in control over our lives. And when Peter and John here are able to stand boldly for Christ, speaking and living in the truth, no matter what the cost is, they are able to do that because their allegiance and their hope is not in man, but in God. Their foundation is not on the things of this earth, but in the things of heaven. And they are able to say with the author of Hebrews chapter 13, that the Lord is their help helper. They will not fear because what can man do to me? They can say what Jesus said and find hope in the truth that Jesus spoke in John chapter 16, that in the world they will have tribulation, but they can take hope because their God has overcome the world. 
And so where do they get this boldness? Well, number one, they remember who their king is. They remember who their king is. Number two, they remember who the king of the universe is. In other words, not just who has their allegiance, but who has all power. <laughs> because when they pray together with the church family, we see that they, they're quoting Psalm chapter 2. It's kind of a hard, uh, a hard passage to follow along with. But what they're doing is they're quoting Psalm chapter 2, and they're praying uh, uh, back to God a passage that says... You know, just like the Gentiles fought against David, just like how the Gentiles in the Old Testament fought against David, your anointed king, O God, so also today, in this city, verse 27, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. What they're doing in their prayer is they're coming to God and they're, they're, they're saying to God, look, everyone is united against Jesus and his people. Everyone is united against your people. The political powers, Herod and Pilate, and all the people, Gentiles and the people of Israel. Everyone has come together to oppose Jesus and his people. And so the church comes together to pray. They bow down before the king and they simply lay this struggle before God. They simply lay their suffering before God, lay it out before him on the table. And then they close with these amazing words in verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Let me read that again. Verse 27. In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's people in Jerusalem are coming to God with open hands, laying their struggle out, on the table and saying to the sovereign God of the universe, God, what's happening to us is hard. What's happening to us is terrible. The perse persecution, God, that we are facing, we hate it. We don't like it. But we know that all of this is according to your plan. What do you do with that? How do you wrap your mind around that? How do you reconcile our suffering with the sovereignty of God? Our pain in this life, even our persecution in this life, with the reality that our God is in control of everything? Well, we can respond in one of two ways. First, the fact that suffering is a part of God's sovereign plan, it might cause you to be angry. It might cause you to say to God, God, why would you plan things this way? You might get angry, and after all, uh, you might never know the full answer to that question. That's one way you might respond, anger. But the fact that suffering is a part of God's sovereign plan might also cause you to respond another way. It might be for you a source of hope. And here's what I mean. The fact that God is in control... It means that our suffering, the pain that we encounter in this world, it's not random. 
It's not the toss of a coin. It's not the roll of a dice. The fact that our God is sovereign over the suffering of this world means for us that our loss of popularity isn't evidence that our God is losing his grip on history. It means for us that when we face sickness, when we, when we face physical pain, social pain, even dysfunction with other people in this world, our God has not lost control. He hasn't gone on vacation. Rather, we can have hope knowing that our God has, is still perfectly in control and working all things together to the end that he has planned for us. If our God wasn't, so, wasn't sovereign, suffering would be terrifying. But because our God is sovereign, we can have hope because our pain, though still hard, has a purpose. And ultimately, guys, we can have hope because one day all pain, all suffering, all tears will be wiped away by the hand of our sovereign king. So the first place Peter and John look for boldness is they remember who their king is. And the second place they look for boldness, is they remember who the king of all is, the sovereign king of all is. And the third place they look for boldness is they run to the king's people. They gather together with the people of God. In fact, that's the first place they go. And when we read this story, that might just feel like a peripheral detail, just a little, uh, little bit of information that Luke throws in. But I don't think it is. I don't think it should be just a peripheral detail that Peter and John gather together with Christ's people. Because for us right now, be free, we don't know what the next decade has in store. We don't even know what the next months have in store. We don't know uh, what our unpopular beliefs might mean for us. But I can tell you right now, just speaking for myself, I am committed to stand boldly in God's truth no matter the cost in the months and years to come. And one place that I can find hope and strength to stand boldly in the weeks, months, and years to come, no matter what comes, is that I know with confidence that many of you are going to be standing beside me. It's easier to face the persecution and the suffering that we will face as Christ's people, knowing that we're not alone in it. That there are hundreds and thousands of other believers who are in this boat with us. Now we're supporting one another, walking with one another through it. Yes, and as here, praying for one another in it. That we can stand boldly in God's truth, no matter the cost, because we are not alone. The future might be uncertain, but we don't walk into the future alone. The community of Jesus Christ will boldly walk with you. So number one, where we look for boldness, number one, we remember who our king is. Number two, we remember who the king of all is. Number one, number three, we run to the people of God. And then number four, most obviously, right in front of us, we ask the king for help. Let me read you in verse 29. They pray, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name 
of your holy servant, Jesus. What's remarkable about this prayer as we read it is that they don't ask God to take away their suffering directly. It is what they want. It is what they're asking God for. But they just lay it out before God and say, God, look upon our threats. We see faith in that even in the knowledge that because they know that their God is sovereign and because they know that their God is good, they know that the good that God will work in their circumstances in the way he sees best. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with asking for God to do specific things. But this is an example to us in a picture of trust in the faith. And after doing that, asking God to look upon the threats of the Jewish leaders, they say in verse 29, Grant your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness. You see, Peter and John, they knew where their boldness came from. They knew their boldness came from God. It came from the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent to them. Verse 31, And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Peter and John, they knew that their boldness was from God, and they knew that their suffering would continue. So they pray for boldness, and God answers with an earthquake. Let me translate that earthquake. It means, okay. <laughs> That's God's way of saying, yes, I will answer your prayer in this passage. He sends the Holy Spirit, and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. The people of God here in this passage today, they prayed because they knew that prayer is a vital part of God's sovereign plan. That prayer really does change things. That the king of the universe uses our prayers in some way to accomplish his purpose. They give time, dedicated time here, directly to prayer, believing that the God who is sovereign would move. And he did. And be free, when I look at our world and I look at our situation, I could be wrong, but I don't think it's going to get any easier to be a follower of Jesus Christ in our country and in our culture. Be free, we're living in a time where we have to learn to be bold in Jesus Christ. And I just want to say this very clearly. Being bold, it does not mean that we, are, we just go and brashly trumpet our own opinions and thoughts. It doesn't mean that we zealously fight for our own party, team, and tribe. It doesn't mean that we use truth as a battering ram or that we consider everyone who disagrees with us our enemies. It doesn't mean that we have a license to be obnoxious. We are still called to speak the truth in love. We are still called to season our, our words with salt, to show the love of Jesus Christ in the way we interact with the world. We're still called to be a light in the darkness. But being bold does mean, Christian in the West, that we speak and live in God's revealed truth, no matter what the cost is. That we boldly hold to the truth, even if it means persecution, even if it means suffering. So Christian, let's boldly stand for the things that Christ is zealous for. 
Let's boldly stand for the opinions of God. Let's boldly stand for what he stands for. Let's boldly do the work of our master, no matter the cost. Let's boldly live in obedience to our master, even if it's hard. Let's boldly speak the words of our master, seeking God's glory in all we do, seeking his approval, not the approval of men. How? Well, first, we remember who our king is. Second, we remember who the king of the universe is and what he can do, his sovereignty. Third, we run to the king's people, find camaraderie and strength in the people of God. And fourth and finally, we ask the king for help. We pray. So be free. Let's end by praying. Heavenly Father, it's your grace alone that gives us the privilege of coming to you and speaking to you and, and knowing that you hear us, God. We can speak to you. We are told to pray to you. And we can be confident, Lord, that you use our prayers to carry out your plan for the world. And, and Father, that is so encouraging. That is such a source of peace and of strength and of hope. And Father, I thank you for the example of this passage today of how Peter and John were bold even in the face of persecution and how a part of their boldness was running to you in prayer, running to you in prayer with the brothers and sisters. And I, I just pray, Father, that as we walk forward as the people of God in this world, even if we're unpopular, Father, that we would stand together as your people prayerfully submitted to you and your plan, your sovereign plan in this world. But Father, I just need to pray here at the end. It's, it, it can be easy for us when we face persecution and struggle in this world from our culture to start seeing the culture as our enemy. But Father, I pray that you would stir in us as your people a love for our neighbors, not an animosity towards them. A desire for their good, for their, their faith, not, not a desire for them to, to see them shut down or to lose a battle. Lord, I pray that you would help be free our church shine a light in this world by loving our enemies, whether we agree with them or not, whether they bless us or curse us, and telling them the good news of Jesus Christ, the hope where all of us can look. Father, I give this to you, and I ask you to move powerfully in our church and in our world. May your kingdom come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.